not to get in your face, but maybe to get in your face a little bit. Uh, don't let that language frighten you. I uh, am thrilled that we get to enjoy together walking through what has become for me uh, one of the more important um, psalms, one of the more important portions in the entire Word of God that really models for us what we mean by the power of the gospel to change believing men. Now, one of the great premises that we've already celebrated so far in this conference and long before this conference is that a good theology of the gospel will always remind us that we believers need the gospel as much as non-believers. Now, that for some of you, fortunately, you were... First nurtured in the faith, and that's not shocking to you, but there are some of us that have grown up in a part of the world and ecclesiastical culture where uh, the gospel was relegated to the beginning of the Christian life. And uh, being from the part of the states I was, as I shared in my class before our time here, gospel initially for me was what Baptists did on Sunday nights. They had a gospel meeting and I was always told people could walk up aisles and, and, and escape hell at the gospel meeting. Now, after that, something else became uh, the paradigm beyond the gospel. Gospel got you in the family, and then from there on out, it's discipleship, it's uh, doing more, trying harder. Well, I don't believe there's anybody in this room that probably believes that's what the gospel is, only the means by which we are given the assurance of eternal life in Jesus. Because the gospel should be a synonym for us for the person and the work of Jesus. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news about the one who has come to, to make all things new and to redeem a bride for himself from every single race, tribe, tongue, and people group. The gospel concerns not just our own individual experience of knowing the redeeming power of the living God. It does do that, and it does so through this magnificent trifecta of justification, sanctification, and glorification. But even in that, it's not just about us. The gospel concerns the world of which we are a part it's the gospel of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. The true king has arrived and he has committed to make all things new. One day, every single sphere of life, every molecule, every atom that is his will be made new. Jesus, please understand this. Jesus has promised to make all things new, not make all new things. We are in a story of redemption, not replacement. And that's why we matter. It's why we want to show up today in the scripture and ponder uh, and perhaps in a fresh way through Asaph, one of the great psalm writers, what does it mean to know that I have freedom in the gospel to own how deep I hurt, how foolish I am? What do I do with the knowledge that though I know I am made for wonder, I am so prone to wander? Now, we're going to see in Psalm 73 what some of us baby boomers would know in light of a great Jackson Brown song. Some of you know the music of Jackson Brown. He wrote a lot of great songs, but one of his songs, Running on Empty, 
is a great way of thinking about Psalm 73. Topic now is to consider the gift of a man in vocational ministry that went through an incredibly powerful and painful season of disconnect. And he gives us his story. He gives us his story. We're going to go through this whole psalm and the time we have before our lunch break. And we're going to notice that with Asaph, we as well are, are made for wonder. And by that language, I mean we are, we are made to be alive. We are made for freedom. We are made to smell everything. We are made to enjoy everything. John Calvin even once said, God never even created a single blade of grass that was not for our pleasure and enjoyment. Brothers, we're made for wonder, to be alive. We're made... For life in a garden paradise, where, where nothing is broken, where every relationship is perfect. We, we are made to be um, men of shame-free nakedness. Don't worry, at the end of the conference, we're not going to act that one out. In some image, since we've been rather anatomically open already in this conference. No, but we are, we are made to see the gaze of God without shame. And one day we will know it fully because his name will be on our foreheads. And that does not mean we're going to have Yahweh on our foreheads. It means there will be no reason to break off the gaze. No need to pose. No need to pretend. <clears throat> well, Asaph went through a season where... Um, he really wrestled with God's goodness, God's faithfulness. And we're going to look at... Look at what that looks like for us, and then I'm going to share just a little of my story that maybe will give some of you permission to begin to think about where is this gospel, where is it likely to take me in this next season of my life? Since God has committed to make each one of us ultimately as lovely and as loving as Jesus, what's between now and then? What is the, what is the place of brokenness? What are wounds you have yet to voice? What does it mean to boast in your brokenness, not about your brokenness. How does Jesus meet us there? Well, hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 73, very, very briefly, Asaph, uh, psalm writer wrote 12 psalms, and that means he wrote uh, principally more of the Bible than the minor prophets. He wrote, he wrote more of the Bible than even some of our New Testament writers, but a lot of us don't know him. Uh, Asaph, a remarkable man that, was, uh, that worked in uh, the tent of meeting and the, and the temple. Uh, his ministry transcended both that of King David and Solomon. Now, it's important for you to know that because as one who was a musician and a great theologian, he got to see a lot of crazy in the body of Christ. Just think about that. If you work for Solomon and David, what likely were you exposed to during that tenure? You, you got to see King David truly in his most noble season of life. And you also saw King David act out so destructively in adultery and murder. But then you go on to work under Solomon, a wise man that became an absolutely crazy man. I mean, what do you do with a thousand concubines and wives and dogs and ponies? I, I don't know, but he saw all of that. I don't know how many of you have lived, ministered long enough to think 
you know, uh, uh, that the cliche is true. Some, some one long time ago, maybe it was that prophet uh, Ray Ortland that once said, uh, you know, the body of Christ is like Noah's Ark. If it wasn't for the storm outside, you couldn't stand the poop inside. <laughs> so, uh, Bible's so real. Very honest. Here's what this looks like. Asaph giving us this gift. Remember with me that all of the Psalms at one time or another were sung in Israel's worship. So here's a part of the honesty and freedom the people of God have always been given but have not always enjoyed. I ask you to think with me through this Psalm. What would it look like if this marked that incredible gospel culture that Ray was talking about last night? Here, here in fact, is a part of what gospel culture gives us as leaders in the body of Christ, but also permeating the whole of our churches. So hear the word of the Lord, Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Surely in Vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence all day long. I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. Put your finger there. If you ever wanted a glorious description, definition, demonstration of a pity party, there it is. We'll come back to that. But, but, but again, appreciate with me. Here's Asaph as someone that helped create the music for the worship of Israel. An incredibly gifted man telling us about a time in his life that this is what it felt like to be a man of God serving God. Some of you should already find consolation in that. Because um, this is a part of the inerrant scripture. And I don't know what you do when it hurts real bad. I don't even know what it feels like to be in this room right now. Maybe some of us are thinking, you know what? If these guys really knew what was going on inside of me right now, they'd take me out into the parking lot and cane me with the gospel. I mean, some of us just assume that you, you, know, that, that you deal with pornography more than any other man in the room. Some of you assume because you're into chronic masturbation that you're going to lose your ordination and nobody else struggles the way you struggle. Some of you think that because you're afraid of your wife, if anybody knew it, that, you know, you'd just be absolutely rid out of town. I mean, this is some really real honest stuff as we'll see. 
Okay? Now, what we've just read in the first part of the psalm is, is kind of a picture of, of, of a wanderer. We're going to come back to talk about your wanderer and my wanderer. What, what, what generates the wander in a heart of a man? And there's two primary generational pulls that define your wonder. I'll come back to that. But notice the next part of the psalm, verse 15. So in verse 15, we kind of see the way the, the song is written, uh, the, 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 the beginning of gospel sanity. We're going to see here a tremendous gift that we're going to talk about, about the importance of sanctuary in your life. And by that, we're not talking about the room we're in right now, but sanctuary in the Bible uh, was, was never principally about a building, but about meeting with God. God's presence is sanctuary. Where was the sanctuary in the Garden of Eden? It was everywhere. You know, you don't have to ask yourself, you know, where did Adam and Eve go to worship God? They didn't have to go anywhere because sin and death had not broken anything. And so the entirety, uh, the entirety of their world was filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters covered the sea, as ours will too be one day. Hallelujah. Thank you very much. But notice... You know, and notice this great picture, verses 15 through 17. So Asaph says, if I had said, I will speak thus, meaning if I had simply teed off on everything it felt like to be me serving under the crazy men, David and Solomon, in a world where the bad guys get blessed while I try to be pure and look what it gets me. If I had teed off, if I'd, gone, if I'd tweeted that, I would have betrayed this generation of your children. So you see a part of Asaph, you know, he's not so out there that he doesn't have a degree of regard. And you know what that feels like too, because a lot of times, for those of you that are in ministry, there's certain boundaries and restraints. I mean, you still got to pay the bills. You don't want to lose your job, right? So there's a certain decorum you hold on to, even while there may be some stuff inside of you you just don't know what to do with. But, but so Asaph is modeling for us in all of his wonder, there's still something in place. And so verse 16, when I'm trying to understand all of this, how what I knew of you, God, and yet what I was experiencing in my world, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Now let me stop there and pray. We're going to finish the psalm, but I want to walk through the first part to kind of talk about what does it mean for us to be wanderers. Let me pray again. Father, thank you for the gift of this conference. Thank you for Pastor Steve and his staff. Thank you for the Gospel Coalition. Thank you, Lord, for already what we've enjoyed in this incredible gathering. I so pray, Lord, that we would know the freedom to have done with our posing and pretending and to know that the safest place in the world is the gospel. The most welcoming place in the universe is your amazing grace. Lord, thank you for Asaph. Thank you that he spun nothing. Thank you that this is hope, not hype. Thank you that we have permission to consider why do our hearts go in directions away from the Lord? And what do we do with that? And how do we walk with one another in that? Help us, Lord, this day now. We pray in our remaining time, bring glory to Jesus 
who is our righteousness, who is our wisdom from God, our very sanctification and redemption. Lord Jesus, thank you that the Father hid our lives in you. And when you will be revealed one day, we will be revealed with you in glory. For you are our life, you are our hope, and we abandon ourselves to you now for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. So, first part of the psalm here. Let's talk about, let's talk about wonder. And uh, first of all, as you go through the first part of Psalm 73, so where did Asaph's wandering heart take him? Uh, truly, here's where he went running on empty. Where do you go when you're running on empty? Um, four things I'll mention I see in the text that pretty well define for us. A part of where we go when we are men, when we are, when we are looking and, and there are things our hearts wish we had, either we assume through a spirit of entitlement or somewhere we read in the Bible or were discipled to believe that we've got a right to these things if we do life right. Four things that first part of the psalm, this dear man began to envy. Position, prosperity, power, and peace. Four P's that show us what he wanted. Uh, where the gravitational pull of his heart, he assumed uh, because he saw in other people these, this currency, he assumed a right. Uh, he envied the arrogance, says Asaph. Position, status, name, reputation, or as C.S. Lewis refers to it, inner circle belonging. Uh, I mean, that's the very word he uses. Verse 3, uh, I envy the arrogant. Now, who is he referring to when he says the arrogant? Um, well, not just those outside the covenant community, but certainly that's, 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 that's appropriate to think of that. You know, he, he, Asaph, saw people that don't care about God having a better life than he did. But also, you know, he saw a lot of arrogance in the kingdom as well. And maybe that hurts more than the other. You know, sometimes we would perhaps say to ourselves, well, non-believers, pagans, they don't have any the same values I do, so they're going after the Porsches, they're going after whatever else. So, of course, they have that. And I wish I had some of that too, but, you know. But you see, what, what's really bothersome is when you're walking in ministry and, and you see people that are not living the kind of integritous life that you're trying to live and it seems like they're getting away with it. Certainly he saw that in King David and Solomon, but certainly he saw how God dealt with King David. So he saw some real good gospel stuff. But, but he was primed to be tempted, as you are as I am. He, he, he envied the arrogant, he, he wanted position. Now, inner circle belonging, what does that look like for those of us in ministry? Well, you know, even sometimes at conferences, and I don't know what insecurities and fears you brought here, but, but maybe some of you have even noticed, why do those five guys hang together all the time and I'm on the outside looking in? Guys, we're, we're made for connection. But you know, most men live life, come near, stay away. We, we want to be in the, we want, we want a posse. And we're going to talk about a gospel posse tomorrow. We want a posse, but yet we think, can I really risk getting close enough to you? Asaph shows us every man wants community, but we are scared out of the bejeebies to have it. Because what if you really get to know me 
and yet again, I don't measure up. He envied position. He envied prosperity. Again, his words, he saw the prosperity of the wicked. What might that involve? Holding security and money? Again, brothers, um, um, it, it costs to do life, to see it here today, and for us to acknowledge that some of us have money, lust, greed, you know, well, join the club. Isn't it fascinating? Isn't it important to know that the New Testament, the only sin the New Testament actually identifies as idolatry is greed? Doesn't mean no other sin is idolatrous. It just that means that, you know, we, we, we assume when, when, when the Lord is not enough, when the Lord... Uh, who is your theological portion, is not your existential portion, you're going to look for some currency to buy relief. I do that and you do that. And so it's just, again, very honest here. This is, this is, a, this is, even, this is not even surprising stuff, but it's honest stuff that we've got to deal with. Uh, his heart is disconnected. Position, name, status, reputation, big church righteousness, successful church plant righteousness. I don't know what it looks like. Prosperity, power. He was drawn, as in his own words, drawn to their healthy bodies, healthy and strong bodies. Perhaps thriving in that a little bit or lurking in that is issues of sexuality. You know, strong, healthy bodies. Uh, here, here's a guy, and we don't know what his physical frame was like when he wrote this psalm. But um, I don't know how many of you are part of workout clubs, but you know the image or some guys, you know, some guys that go to the YMCA. Do you all have the YMCA in Canada? Okay, I didn't know if that was an American thing or not. Why do you think they have mirrors all the way around all the walls of all those clubs? You know, because you want dancing deltoids. You want precious pecs. You, just, you know, there's something about us that wants sensually to be alive because we want to be attractive and for most of us, that's not about simply filling out your golf shirt. It, it has something to do with that part of us that really wants to be sexually, sensually engaged. Now, that's not specifically in the text here, but the, but the sheer reference of, you know, wanting the physicality, the, 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 our, our body's health. It's, it's, it's never just about, uh, I want a 33-inch waistline. There's something else going on there. Position, prosperity, power, lastly, peace. And maybe this is the one that some of us would be more drawn to if we're honest about where our hearts are going right now. But he, he basically looks at uh, people getting away with all kind of stuff. And you, you, you hear his language saying, you know, I also want a hassle-free, stress-free, burden-free life. You know, what, what strong language. They have no concerns. Look at the over-exaggeration uh, he writes about in uh, verse 12. This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. In vain I've kept my heart pure. In vain I've washed my hands all day long. I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. Really, Asaph, every single morning, every single day, you've been plagued. You would say your life is a living plague. Really? We're, you know, no, but that's what it felt like. Now, here's what I want to talk about in a minute. Let's talk about what really is even beyond the specifics of what you and I might say right now about what you really want. If you could have 
If you could have anything you really want, what would you want? I don't know what your list, which of the four P's, if you'd add your own three P's to his list of position, prosperity, power, and peace, that's not the issue now. What inside of us defines our wander? Why are we wandering? Let me suggest two things. All of us in this room, I would say in the world, tend to wander by one of two or both gravitational pulls. Either number one, filling the emptiness, or number two, by medicating the pain. I think in the heart of every man, but if our sisters were here as well, I would suggest for them too, there are, there are two core gravitational pulls that help us define uh, what's really going on with envy or discontent. Either number one, filling the emptiness or medicating the pain. Now, what's the difference between the two? Um, first of all, emptiness, you know, it was, it was Augustine that said, Lord, you've made us. God, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Pascal, Pascal the French mathematician and physicist long before Augustine, no, actually Augustine was before Pascal. Pascal, long after Augustine, said, Lord, there's a God-shaped void inside of us. It's a vacuum. He actually used the word vacuum. And a vacuum is aggressive emptiness. Guys, every one of us have legitimate longings that are shaped in the shape of Jesus that we try to fill with something else. So you've got to understand emptiness and longings if you're going to understand your sin. But you know what? I don't want to camp on that one as much as the second. This theme of medicating our pain. Um, because I'm more familiar with this. And this has defined a lot of my story, even in ministry. Uh, uh, for a few moments, just to tell you a little bit about my story, why this psalm is so powerful in my life. I have spent a lot of my marriage and my parenting and my ministry and my friending or my friendships as a wandering man with a deep, 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 strong gravitational pull that's connected to my commitment to medicate pain in my soul. And um, a lot of the men in my world have known me as someone that in the posture I'm in right now, very talkative, very verbal, very, very seemingly engaged and alive, they just assume if I could just spend a weekend with you, I bet it would change my life. And they didn't know what they were talking about. Yeah, it would change their life. <laughs> because to be with me for a lot of my life in ministry has been to be with a man that is so running. Wandering and running. So afraid. Not understanding the voices inside. Not understanding the discontent. I was a long time in coming then to understand that two of the most powerful forces in my life functionally at times way more powerful than the gospel have been fear and shame. Fear and shame for a lot of my life, even my ministry, have had more power on the choices I make, how I do relationship, how I relate to my wife, how I parent. Fear and shame. I understand this gravitational pull of medicating the pain. And let me tell you what that's connected to. Part of beginning to understand your wander is to be willing to let the gospel take you into some of perhaps the lurking heart wounds you've never taken seriously. 
And we want to go there very carefully because, you see, the goal of the gospel is not to bring you and me to the place of putting on the victim sweatshirt. You know, got that in mind? You know any people in your world that basically are living as one big excuse? Cut me some slack. Have you simply understood me? You'd leave me alone. Folks, we're not talking about victimization. But let me tell you what we are talking about. I was 50 years old. My next birthday will be my 65th, just to kind of put you in the context of my baby boomer world. But I was 50 years old before I began to acknowledge there were two chapters in my life that warranted significant gospel work. And they were deep wounds deep wounds in my soul that set me up to be a wanderer, even in ministry. A guy far more comfortable holding a microphone in front of 10,000 people than really letting men into my soul or even my wife into my soul. My two wounds are these. And again, by God's grace in this time, in my situation, through a ministry burnout, I came to the point, at a, really at a time in what some would call the height of ministry success, where I hit the wall. Emotional, mental, spiritual, physical burnout. Hallelujah. So the Lord loves us so much, He moves towards us like he did Jonah. And, and if we've got enough gospel sanity to read three-foot swells, they don't have to become six-foot swells. But if we avoid the six-foot swells of God pursuing his running sons, God can make you and me into well vomit. And I, I was so committed to aloneness, alienation, living in my head but not in my heart, for me, I don't think it necessarily is going to take it for you. I needed to hit the wall. And again, for the sake of time, let me tell you where that took me. First chapter in my life that I had never taken seriously was the impact of the death of my mom in my life when I was 11 years old. Now, some of you lost a parent earlier than me. Some of you have had a trauma and a life tragedy perhaps deeper earlier than me. But let me explain to you as an 11-year-old what that meant to come home one day from school only to be told that my mom that morning had been killed in a head-on crash. The, day, the way that played out that day was this. I'm, I was in my sixth grade year of, uh, I guess, middle school, came home, and, and again, just a uh, shorthand version was um, a neighbor... Uh, comes to me and says, Scotty, I've got to, uh, I hate to tell you this, but this morning your mom was killed in a car crash. Immediately went to her home, uh, stunned by that knowledge, because in my family system, mom was everything. And uh, I, I remember being in my neighbor's home. About an hour later, my one sibling, my brother Moose, came to join me. I have a brother three years older than me. And uh, we met. He was 14. I was 11. Two hours later, our father walked in the side door. Uh, my dad was a professional photographer, school photographer, traveled during every day, get up early before I went to school and would be out and gone and come back. And uh, it wasn't a job he enjoyed, but it paid the bills. He comes in the side door and I'm sitting there across from my brother. I'm 11. Moose is 14. Mom is dead. Dad walks in. Maybe you would instinctively think sons get up, run to dad, hold, embrace and weep and fall apart together not my family. My dad comes in. I don't even want to look at him. 
He walks up to my brother and I and he says, do you boys know what has happened? And with, we nodded our head. And with that, he walked right by us into another room. And her name was not mentioned for the next 39 years. I was not forced to go to the funeral home. I never saw my mom's body. That night of my mom's death, we all three of us slept in a different home. And the sheer vacuum of anything healthy or safe or normal of processing so deep a trauma set me up for a life of incredibly, incredible aloneness. And living as an orphan in your own home for years, the, the impact of that. I never had a single memory of my father ever touching me in discipline or affection. But let me fast forward a little bit because the beginning of looking at the impact of that loss in my life, I never grieved. I never went back to my own mother's grave until 39 years later after she died. It's a 50-year-old guy. Can you imagine that? Your, your mom dies, you're 11, you're 50 when you finally make it back to her tomb. Well, let me tell you what six years after that event I discovered as the far even deeper, more defining wound in my heart that you know, when I really began through the gospel resources to understand its impact has, has brought me into the journey for the last 10, 12, 13 years of healing and beginning to realize this gospel meets us in the most defining marks of our soul. Three years before my mom was ripped out of my life, um, I was sexually abused by um, an older kid in our neighborhood. And uh, once again, time frame here. If we were on a weekend retreat, I could give you more context, but this will be enough. Um, brothers, it took me so many years of even cherishing this gospel that we're talking about here to come to the point where I could, I could honestly acknowledge about that chapter in my life. Um, what could be more defining? What could be more dismantling what can be more confusing than to be taken advantage of by someone that you thought you could really trust. And you don't need to know any of the specifics and the details of my abuse, but just know this. It involved as an eight-year-old kid being exposed to massive pornography and to be preyed upon in a way that for most of my adult life, I've questioned my masculinity. And the shaming and the maiming of one's soul, the confusion, and, 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 and pushing that down somewhere into my big toe, so much of my ministry, trying to put numerous boxes of Roman 8, Romans 8, 28 band-aids on that. Uh, brothers, we pastors, we men who have a lot of information in theology, we can do a lot of our work up in our head when we're called to live from our hearts. And, and these last, really, like I said, these, this last uh, 10, 11, 12 years in particular, uh, the preciousness of this gospel that has begun to give me understanding about um, not, not excuses, but, but, but information and explanation about why have I been so intimidated by men? Why have I, you know, why and how and in what specific ways have fear and shame had more functional control over my life than the love of God that I love to preach. I really believe now, looking back, that some of my most 
uh, God used preaching in downtown Franklin was not speaking from a place of conviction, but a place of deep longing. And you know what? I'm completely okay with that. Because brothers, when we minister the gospel, not as experts, but as hungry, thirsty men, the Lord meets us there. I just so wish it did not take the disruptive burnout I had to finally come to the point to cry uncle that I might cry Abba. And let me tell you, that's where Asaph went. To go into sanctuary is to begin to deal with not just the sheer signs of sin in your life. What do you think if you had more of your life would be okay? You know, look at, name the kinds of things you're going after, but in a more profound way to begin to understand what is really driving my soul? Why, why, why am I so, what am I afraid of? Let's just even think about the theme of shame for a minute. I mentioned this yesterday when we were looking at Zephaniah. Brothers, in the gospel and in the gospel alone, Christian legalism, moralism, pragmatism won't take you there. But in the gospel, we do begin to discover the difference between guilt and shame. We are made for shame-free nakedness, which means I'm not afraid of being seen. We, most of us, in the movement of the gospel, come to rejoice in forensic justification, the good news of the legal declaration that Jesus has taken our guilt. Hallelujah. And he has. But some of us don't understand guilt and shame are not the same thing. Our, our shame is that fear of being seen. Our, our, our shame is that which may be connected to some things we've done that we've never brought to the throne of grace, but more often than not, brothers, they are connected to chapters in our lives that we've never had a voice for. For me, that meant finally being able to get the permission to grieve the loss of my mom. I never wept. I, I, never, I, I never was, you know, able to say, uh, Lord, it, 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 it has marked me deeply and, and to wrestle with before the face of a gracious God. Lord, I wish that had not happened. Brothers, I hope you know that the scripture gives you permission to take whatever it is that's the most violent, vile thing in your life to the Lord. If you're not taking your stories to the Lord, you're taking them somewhere. A lot of us, for a lot of us, guys, we've done some of our worst fathering by trying to relive our lives through our kids as a way of processing our own pain. And we put, we put the burden on them that they don't have. They, they have no clue why we're so rigid. You know, they have no clue why we're so angry. There's stuff going on inside some of us that we need to know. What a great picture. Lord, this is what it was like. This, this is, in fact, notice what, where Asaph does. Look at verse 21. Asaph shows us what happens when we are not men alive to the gospel that gives us the freedom to say, this changes too. I'm, I'm not just changing my habits, but God meets me in the shame and the contempt and the sorrow and the loss. He meets me there. If we don't go to the place of healing, look at verse 21, 22. Asaph says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Now, what a gift that is to say, emotionally, here is a psalm writer 
wrote a lot of the Bible that said a lot of people may not, didn't, may not have recognized it because I kept being a high-functioning guy in ministry, but on the inside, this is what it felt like to be me. I was a beast. And brothers, you know what? Uh, the gospel gives you the freedom to say that. And if you cannot say that, you know what? Your wife might be able to say it for you. See, in my story, it was actually in our marriage when my wife began to process her story. Darlene has been the hero in our marriage because she was the first person in our marriage that really began to cry uncle that she might cry Abba. In fact, when we got married, and, and some of you would maybe want to debate me on this, but I don't think there is any couple in this room that were more ill-prepared for marriage than my wife and I. I mean, uh, the first night I met Darlene, I thought, that's the woman I'm going to marry. 18 months later, I asked her out for our first date. On our second date, I asked her to marry me. We were married three months later. I used to call that supernatural. Now I'll call it stupid. <laughs> We suffered under the worst theology. It was 1972. We believed everything Hal Lindsey said. We thought Jesus would be back by 1975, so we had three years for sex and evangelism. <laughs> Short life, let's get married and, you know, legally enjoy the blessings of covenant communion and save the world because, you know, we're all out of here soon. It's all going to burn. And, and, and she didn't know her story. I didn't know my story. And my wife was far more tragically sexually violated than I. You know, one, one of the things though within our marriage that God really used in her life, you know, three and a half weeks after our first child was born, my father-in-law committed suicide. And to watch my wife that loves Jesus so much um, model before me the integrity of Job wrestling with God was one of the things the Lord used to help me in time be free to say, Lord, where were you when? And I thank God for my wife that had the courage to wrestle with God. You see, Job is commended because he took the argument to God. Brothers, the Lord, you're not going to shock the Lord with some of the things you named me to say. You're, you're taking your wounds. You're taking the worst part of you. You're taking your divided self somewhere. Your wife, your kids, your congregation may be paying the biggest price. Take that stuff to a throne of grace. Now again, I'm going to begin to wind this down a little bit because we've got to see where Asaph shows us that it is the gospel that is the key to our healing. It is the power of the gospel that gives us the freedom to say, Lord, this hurts so deeply, but I want to say one more thing about my sexual abuse and then go into that and finish up because we're about out of time here. Brothers, I don't know if any chapter of our existence that has more defining and or debilitating power than how you think about yourself as a sexual person. And I simply want to say to you, if you are even in doubt about some of the things that have happened to you as a young man or at some season in your life, please don't spin it. I spent years just trying to relegate my experience to boys being boys, trying out the plumbing, all that kind of nonsense. I was harmed deeply, and I'm so thankful that this gospel gives us the freedom to say, Lord, I can bring that shame to you. Lord, it's in the gaze of Jesus that I find healing and relief. And that's exactly where Asaph takes us. Let's just finish up looking at the second part of the psalm. I want to read verse 21, 22 again, then finish out. 
Because you see, here's the wonder for which we've been made. Here's the, you know, we're, we're given the freedom to own our wander. And brothers, I don't know what wandering looks like right now for you. I don't know what track shoes you have on. I don't know what ticket for Tarshish you got booked. I don't know what you're more afraid of. I don't know what the face of shame looks like. I don't know if you're more driven by self-centered contempt or other-centered contempt because it's easier to be pissed off at the world than you really to deal with the fact that you're a sad man. But anger is easier for you than sadness. Brothers, you've got the freedom to grieve because you've got someone that will embrace you. Look at this. When my heart was grieved, my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant, I was a brute beast before you, yet, here's the gospel, I am always with you. Why? Why am I always with the Lord? Because you hold me by my right hand. Brothers, in the gospel, it's Jesus' grasp of you that matters, not your grasp of Him. In the gospel, you're sitting there in the palm of Jesus holding onto a thumb, but he, it's His palm that's got you. Asaph forgot that. We know it even better than Asaph because we live on the, this side of all the fulfillment of the promises that Asaph, the promises that were precious to him. Lord, I'm, I'm with you because you hold me by my right hand. You, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. Do you see the past, present, and future of a redemption right there? You've grasped me. You are guiding me. You will take me to glory justification, sanctification, glorification. I'm not suggesting those are the categories that Asaph was thinking about at all, but you do see here where Asaph is saying, when I was a beastly man, I didn't get over that and then come to you. Only in sanctuary, only in the sanctuary of gospel was I given the freedom to say, Lord, I'm tired of me. Those of you that were in my uh, prayer seminar or a little conversation before this, you know, you know, I shared the story of Jack Miller with you about how I have had a model of a man that got so disgusted with his self-righteousness, it finally took him to sanctuary. And this is exactly what the Bible does. Lord, this is who you are. You've got a hold of me. You are guiding me. You are the good shepherd. You will take me to glory. I think for me, a part of what I needed to have the permission to look at my sexual abuse and the impact of being an orphan in my own family. And brothers, I promise you this, growing up in that family where my dad was so taken up with paying for life, and I'm not dishonoring my dad because I got to preach my dad's funeral, and I know my dad knows now a zillion times more theology than his son. But you know what? I needed to realize the impact of being so alone. I was so... Guys, I entered marriage... It's just startling how insecure I was about assuming every man in the universe knew how to do life but me. I didn't know how to fix carburetors. I didn't know what a carburetor was. I assumed every man in the world knew how to do finances. And I, I was a complete orphan. And again, I don't need to debate it with you. Just know this. If you feel insecure about life, been there with you. And the gospel will meet you there. Guys, you don't have to stay stuck. You don't have to do the rest of your life paralyzed by real wounds. The Lord is a healer. You will take me into glory. 
Whom have I in heaven but you? And being with you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish, and you destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made my sovereign Lord, the sovereign Lord, my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Appreciate what, what Asaph is doing in conclusion here. He's showing us, of course, the whole psalm is looking back over. The entire story, I'm going to slow down because I've got a few minutes here. I've got s- seven more minutes, is that good? It's a redemptive, it's a biblical number, right? Okay, um, Asaph is showing us, the whole psalm is about he's in a fresh place of gospel sanity, okay? Uh, and, and in a fresh place of gospel sanity, he's showing us here, here's where the gospel will take you and me. We will go through parts of our narrative that need to be owned, named, and processed. I don't know what that looks like for you. I would suggest this, however, wherever you live, if you're not walking in some degree of community where you can share your story, find it. Even begin it before you go home from this conference. Grab a brother or a friend and simply say, look, can we just pray? I I, I don't know if this has much meaning or not, but you know what? Through the conference hearing Ray Ortland preach or somebody, I, there's just something about, I, I, you know, would you listen? And brothers, give each other the gift of listening. None of us, at, please, let's get over our mentality that we pastors are called to fix anybody. I, got, I had to get over that one in my marriage. For, for a while, I thought God made me the fourth member of the Trinity in my marriage. Like my chief calling was to fix my wife. We're not called to fix anybody. We're called to find sanctuary together. And the gospel is the sanctuary. And, 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 and to go there again and again and again is to begin to say afresh again and again and again with Asaph, Lord, this is sanity. Who do I have in heaven but you? I'm not thinking of streets of gold. I'm not thinking about condos decorated by my works. I'm thinking, Lord sanctuary is eternity and I have it now in the gospel. Lord, right now I know this to be true because of the work of Jesus. You cannot love me more than you do today and you'll never love me less. And that's all the permission I need now to do significant heart work, the hard and heart work of freedom. Brothers, uh, some of you are not 50 years old yet. You don't have to wait till your year of jubilee. Some of you are 60 or 70. Don't say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. You're not a dog. You're an image bearer of God. I just want to use the remaining time I have just to pray for a few minutes over us. Just, just to pray. Again, I don't, I don't know where for some of you this message has connected. For some of you, you're just hungry for a sandwich. It, you know what? We're all beloved of the Lord, and it all counts. But I do know this. There's got to be some men in this room like me that have been running on empty a long time. There's got to be some wanderers in this particular group of men in Prince Edward Island that would realize now, here's why I came to Pastor Steve's conference this week. Let's just pray for a few minutes. Father, I... uh, I thank you with my brother so much for the scriptures. Oh, Lord, that our churches would know this gospel culture of the vulnerability, the transparency, 
transparency, the authenticity that runs from Genesis through Revelation. Lord, the games we play, the gamesmanship we get into as vocational pastors. Lord, Lord Jesus, those you set free are free indeed. How I wish much sooner, indeed, Jesus, that I could have become, begin to understand the impact of mom's death and my abuse. But Lord, thank you that you've been healing me. Thank you that you've been, you've been giving me in this season of marriage a healthier connection than the first 25 years. Thank you, Lord, for connecting with adult children now in a way I never could when I was a Young dad, just afraid of failure, having no clue about intimacy. Lord, thank you that you do restore years eaten away by locusts. Thank you, Lord, that for men like me in this room that, that are not strangers to fear and shame, we don't have to be ashamed of that. You'll meet us there. Come, Holy Spirit, come today in this moment, in these next several hours. Tonight, tomorrow, come and give these men sanctuary. Father, it, it, it's you we need. It's the resources of Jesus plus nothing. It's you, O oh God, the Holy Spirit. Bring renewal, freedom, and revival to our hearts. And Lord, even as I thank you now, standing here in almost my 65th year, I am so excited about the next season of freedom. Lord, I feel like I'm just beginning to taste coming out of that shell of the sexual confusion and the, and, the, and the shame of my body and just assuming everybody's more of a man than me. Just, just Lord, feel like I'm on the cusp of being a good friend to other men, not feeling like I've got to be any more sufficient than I am. Oh, Lord, sweep through our hearts. Free us as pastor. Free us as men. Lord, we want to love one woman well the rest of our lives, our wives. We want to not be shackled by this, this burden of, 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 of unspoken stories. Thank you, Lord, that you're at work. Thank you, Lord, that you are at work. Thank you that you will bring us to glory and that even now through the power of resurrection, you'll bring us in the seasons of healing. Father, if there are men in this room like me that, that, that need a season of just good, solid Christian counseling, Father, would you resource it and, 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 and connect men in this room, maybe of whom who are carrying already, if not just the seedbed, even full-bore addictions. Father, it is so likely that, that several of us in this room right now, Lord, are, are hooked into ways of medicating this pain. Whether it's pornography, whether it's ministry madness, whether it's abusing that, that one half glass of red wine now is a half a bottle a night, whether some of us are in far more uh, dangerous ways of, 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 of acting out. Lord, thank you, thank you that you know all about that. Again, we'll never shock you with our confession. We, we, Lord, we, we, we won't bring you anything that you will put your hand over your mouth and discuss. Lord, you'll never roll your eyes at us. You will never despise us. Lord Jesus, you are the one that took not only our guilt, but you did not despise the shame. You took our shame. Despising the shame of the cross, you don't despise our shame. Hallelujah, Lord. 
Just trust you now, Lord, in conclusion to work in these coming days and hours. I thank you, Lord, for the scripture. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for these beautiful men, these beautiful, beautiful men. Bring freedom, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.